1: Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am excited to have once again with me today Dr. David Mintz, who you may remember as one of our fantastic neuroanesthesiologists who was on the show once before to talk about the management of air embolism and is now back to talk about therapy for increased intracranial pressure and brain relaxation during neurosurgery. Before we get there, I have a couple of announcements. First of all, it has come to my attention that the first five episodes of the podcast series are difficult to access or actually not available on the iTunes podcast app. It just starts at episode five, and I think that's because when I switched over from our old website to the new website, it was after episode five, and for some reason, even though I posted those first five on the new website at acrack.com, they're not appearing on iTunes. So you can get those episodes by going to ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can download the first five episodes and listen to them there. If anyone out there has more technological knowledge than I do and knows how I can access those episodes, please let me know if they know how I can make them available to people by just going to iTunes. Uh, I'd love to know. Leave a comment or email me. And remember, you can always leave comments on the website, ACRAC.com. You can also sign up for our mailing list where you'll get information about new episodes and other interesting things in anesthesia and critical care. And you can leave comments there on episodes and email me directly at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. All right. I am going to bring on Dr. David Mintz, but first I want to introduce him by telling a story Uh, about the topic he's going to talk about from when I was a resident. So I was uh, the CA3 on call at San Francisco General Hospital uh, in San Francisco. And when we're there, we work in teams, a CA3, a CA2, and a CA1. And we take a a trauma call in addition to anything else that might come in overnight. And sure enough, one night there's a a trauma. We go down to the ED, and there's a youngish man who's been hit over the head with a baseball bat. And he is uh, unconscious. He's got a GCS of three and he is taken uh, emergently to the operating room with concern for increased ICP. He was incredibly hypertensive and had a relatively normal to slightly slow heart rate. We get him to the operating room, we put in A-line, central line, sort of while they're splashing and cleaning his head and getting ready and shaving his hair, getting ready to make incision. This is all happening pretty emergently. And they open the skull... And there's this incredibly bulging Dura that looks like it's ready to pop. And my attending looks down at this and she says to me, get ready. And sure enough, the minute that they open that Dura, in about 30 to 45 seconds, he codes. So it completely uh, goes asystolic. I remember jumping up on top of him on the operating room table straddling him and starting CPR with therefore as I was facing his head my head was over the top of the drapes and I'm looking down at the operating field as they are operating and suctioning a huge amount of blood out from inside the dura and pooled all around we gave some epi we gave some vasopressin we uh, resuscitated with some blood since he lost a huge amount and we actually were able to get him back and he actually ended up doing okay and leaving the hospital about a month later Pretty amazing given the severity of the injury that he had. But lots of interesting physiology there. The hypertension combined with the bradycardia from the increased ICP and the fact that once that pressure was released, he actually coded. Lots of really interesting stuff, much of which we're actually going to cover in a subsequent episode when we bring Dr. Mintz back to talk about the physiology of increased ICP. Today he's going to focus on the therapy. What would you do to treat it? how would you reduce it, and if you're doing anesthesia for neurosurgery, how will you relax the brain if increased ICP becomes a problem, or if simply the surgeons need the brain to be more relaxed to facilitate the surgery that they're performing. And without further ado, let's bring on Dr. David Mintz to talk about what to think about and uh, how to behave around increased intracranial pressure. Okay.
2: Thank you very much for having me again. So, there are two parts to this. And the first part uh, relates to the physiology of intracranial hypertension. Um, We won't address that this time. In fact, we'll move on to the second part, which is much more fun, which is therapy for intracranial hypertension. And the first thing that you have to think about when you consider this is what exactly is your goal? What are you using these therapeutics for? And there are really two common clinical scenarios in anesthesiology. One is the rather dramatic version, which Jed just talked about, which is when someone potentially has impending brain herniation. That is a life-threatening event, and brain herniation, I would urge you to consider as another word for death, um, which requires very uh, immediate and timely measures and it's a sort of no-compromise situation. It doesn't really matter what your second goal is if your first goal isn't keeping the brain in the calvarium. The second and probably much more common scenario that we encounter in neurosurgical anesthesia is the attempt to relax the brain in order to facilitate neurosurgery. I don't want to minimize this goal. In fact, it's very important. Um, Good access to the structures that the surgeon is attempting to operate on is critical both for completing the procedure in a timely fashion and also for the patient's postoperative outcomes. Um, However, it's not a life or death matter. It's something that you should approach with a great deal more caution. So, uh, and I should mention, sometimes the second scenario can turn into the first scenario, but we generally hope not. So let's begin by just talking generally about what the different ways are that we could reduce intracranial pressure. So if you think about this in terms of compartments, There are three compartments in the brain. There's brain parenchyma, brain tissue. There's the blood component of the brain, both arterial and venous. And uh, additionally, there's cerebrospinal fluid. Those are the only three things in the brain, and it's a zero-sum equation. If one of those components is increased, then the pressure goes up. Alternately, if one of those components is increased and the pressure is not expected to go up, then there has to be a decrease in the volume of one of the other components. And that's the name of the game, is to find a compartment that you can decrease the volume for, thus decreasing the pressure. Uh, So let's essentially start with things that are common and move to things that are less common. So probably everybody's favorite therapy for intracranial hypertension is hyperventilation. Hyperventilation is great. Once your patient is intubated, all you need to do is change your ventilator settings. Uh, A common misconception, particularly amongst our surgical colleagues, is that the end tidal carbon dioxide is what correlates with the use of hyperventilation to reduce intracranial pressure. Of course, it's really the PaCO2. Um, And so if you're going to employ this methodology in a rigorous way, of course, you need to actually measure PaCO2s day-to-day, you may just go with feedback from your surgeon. Um, Some notes about hyperventilation. For one thing, it's hardly a perfect method. Um, It only lasts somewhere between six and eight hours on average. So for long surgeries or for patients who remain in units with high ICPs, it's a technique that will essentially become relatively less useful over time. Secondly, and What
1: happens there, Dave? Does it reset? So if, if you hyperventilate someone to a PACO2 of 28, uh, what happens 12 hours later if you're still at 28? Sadly, you need to keep them there or else they'll experience an expansion of
2: the blood component uh, of the intracranial volume. And so it's worth noting, of course, that the way in which this this technique works is it decreases... Perfusion to the brain, it actually shrinks the medium-sized arterioles, um, and as such, reduces the blood content in the brain. This has a price to it, so you're globally reducing perfusion in the brain. And in fact, in current ACLS approaches, uh, people are no longer encouraged to hyperventilate patients with intracranial hypertension because the uh, the negative. Uh, associated with reduced perfusion is not outweighed by the positive of reducing the ICP when other methods are available. Um, However, when you have a patient under general anesthesia with a reduced metabolic requirement who you're attempting to gently shrink the brain, this is a great technique. Um, And as such, it's probably the first thing that we institute for most neurosurgical patients having a craniotomy. It's also easily titratable, which is nice. And it works in almost everybody as long as you can ventilate them appropriately. So moving on to the second, probably most popular, most commonly used technique, um, diuresis. So this works primarily on the brain parenchyma. Um, It reduces the water content in the brain. And the most commonly used agent is mannitol. Um, Mannitol is administered intravenously. There's no magic number for a dose of manitol. It's been debated, and people have made careers studying appropriate doses. Um, typically, surgical doses will range anywhere from uh, 0.25 milligrams per kilogram up to a milligram per kilogram. And sometimes in trauma settings, even larger doses will be attempted. Uh, manitol works relatively quickly. Um, and as such, it's a nice complement for other techniques that take a little longer to work. It's a fairly benign drug for most people in the sense that it doesn't have a whole lot of other direct effects. However, it's important to consider your patient when you institute therapy with mannitol. So do this thought experiment. Imagine you're a medicine intern and Mr. Jones, your patient in slot four, has an injection fraction of 10%. Um, What would be the effect of giving him a gram per kilogram of mannitol? Well, it would be a large fluid bolus uh, descending on his right and then his left heart. And so you could imagine that folks with low ejection fractions don't tolerate this type of therapy very well. Uh, you have to have sufficient pump function uh, to tolerate this kind of thing. And I would caution you in using manitol below an ejection fraction of 25%. Um, there are alternatives to manitol. Lasix is the most common one. Uh, We prefer not to use Lasix, particularly in intracranial surgery, because, as the name says, it lasts six hours, and this may not be what you want. Um, However, Lasix has the benefit of uh, being actually a fairly good drug for heart failure. So know your patients and choose your drug appropriately.
1: I think that's always great advice, Dave. I wanted to ask you about Manitol. I remember as a resident there being a lot of debate amongst attendings as to what to do about the urine output. Do you replace the urine output one-to-one, or how do you handle that? Obviously, mannitol causing a a large diuresis, they're going to make a lot of urine. Do you try to replace it or not?
2: So this is, again, one of these issues that folks have made careers on without actually having arrived at a consensus. And I think the question is really, what is your ultimate goal? If you have a patient who is continuing to be in danger of herniation, you may choose not to undergo fluid replacement. However, if you have a patient who's having a craniotomy and at the end of the day, you're removing a large mass from their brain and you actually are going to face a situation where you might worry more about brain sag than about increased intracranial pressure, you'd like to return them to euvolemia at the end of the surgery. So in that case, I'd argue that perhaps not during the relaxation phase of the case, but once the mass has been removed, you should think about getting back to a euvolemic state because you're not really helping your patient a whole lot by having them be hypovolemic once the mass is gone. Um, a second category of patients you should pay special attention to are those with incomplete renal function. So if your patient's kidneys are boxed and they're on dialysis, giving them mannitol, of course, is a, an unproductive strategy. Um, and then, of course, there's the gray area of patients who have elevated creatinine but who still make urine, And recommendations vary. Um, Some folks will begin with mannitol and then give Lasix. If the diuresis fails to materialize, some folks will give both. There are also arguments for simply going with Lasix, particularly if the patient is on Lasix to begin with.
1: Now, will the mannitol still draw the fluid out of the brain parenchyma, but then it'll just stay in the body? Correct. So So you'll still get the decrease in ICP.
2: You'll get the decrease in ICP, but... At the price of a very elevated circulating volume, yeah. which folks may or may not be able to handle. Particularly your renal failure patients, on average, they may not have normal hearts.
1: Great.
2: So diuresis, um, a very effective and potentially rapid method to alter the ICP, but not, not the best titrated one. Once you set it in motion, it's hard to take it back. Um, moving on to other things that we do very commonly, steroids. So... Almost every neurosurgical patient gets a dose of steroids, and the mechanisms by which steroids reduce intracranial pressure are not completely understood, but they do shrink the brain parenchyma compartment. Um, They're about the slowest acting of the various things that we can use, and as such, they're not appropriate as acute therapy for someone who's herniating. Um, There are also some other caveats. Almost anybody can receive steroids, but the fallout from it may be notable, particularly in patients who are brittle diabetics. And you should take care to do frequent sugars uh, on those patients, particularly if you find yourself redosing the steroids, as some neurosurgeons suggest is appropriate. Um, Independently of its effects on ICP, the administration of steroids is correlated with better outcomes in patients undergoing craniotomies, and as such, almost all of your craniotomy patients will get a steroid dose. So then those are probably, those methods define most of the approaches that you take at a first glance to a patient. Um, Beyond that, there are a number of things that you can do. Um, One of the simplest ones is a positioning issue. So your patients who are supine or head down Uh, have the worst ICP situation possible. And you can often make a dramatic difference in the intracranial pressure simply by sitting your patient up. In the case of trauma, this may be one of the easiest measures to institute in a patient who is at an acute risk of intracranial herniation. In a surgical context, this has to be taken uh, with a little more care. So surgical patients, of course, can't necessarily be repositioned suddenly, particularly neurosurgery patients with pins and in the setting where surgeons may be working on delicate parts of the brain, don't do this without having a conversation with the surgeon. Secondarily, you should consider whether there is any likelihood of air embolism in a patient. So a patient who's seated upright or inclined to a greater extent who has any open veins from dural sinuses or... um, just opening the skull in a craniotomy may be at an elevated risk of intracranial, uh, of, uh, of venous aerobolus. Um So think about this when you institute this. Final word that we should put in about patients who um, elevated head is being used as a therapy for intracranial hypertension. Be very wary when you take on these patients that you're not going to move them to a context where you change the elevation of their head unless you can actually measure the ICP and know this is safe classic scenario is a patient with an elevated ICP who gets taken to an interventional neuroradiology context. All of those procedures require the patient to lie flat. If you take your patient who has to sit up in order to keep their ICP within a reasonable range and you lie them flat, you may find yourself in a bit of trouble. So before you institute a therapy like that, be sure you're monitoring the ICP and be sure that you can actually move the patient's head down um, in a way that will will allow them to remain safe.
1: Yeah, that sounds really important. Uh, What about, do you think, in addition to the kind of up-down, do you think about the neck being turned as, uh, is that a danger in terms of kinking off the venous outflow from the head and therefore increasing ICP?
2: So surgeons worry uh, endlessly, and I think with good reason, that decreased venous drainage may greatly alter the picture that they see. It'll both increase Uh, intracranial pressure, which is unfavorable, and additionally, it can cause increased microvascular bleeding, and both of those things are are negative. And whenever a patient is positioned for neurosurgery, you should think about this, and the rule, which I don't think has any great uh, basis in the literature, is that you should be able to stick three fingers between the patient's chin and whatever the closest part of their body is, and if you can't, then you're at risk of obstructing the great veins, Um, As to whether this is relevant to patients who are uh, undergoing procedures for urgent hypertension, I'm not entirely sure. Most of those procedures, um, you would really have to think about that as well and ensure that you had good venous drainage. So moving along, other things that you can do, Uh, one of the most powerful ways you can approach intracranial hypertension is by draining CSF out of the patient. So as an anesthesiologist, this probably isn't something that you're going to initiate. So uh, typically, intraventricular drains are placed by the neurosurgical team, which can be done as a bedside procedure completely without our participation. Um, And then during a surgery, you would have access to the drain or when taking care of a patient in ICU. Um, This is one of the most titratable and rapid ways to reduce intracranial pressure, and it's Of course, it's limited only by the volume of CSF that's actually in the brain. Um, And in thinking about this method of therapy, it's really important that you come to understand the pressure transducers and the the ICP, the cerebrospinal drainage apparatus that the neurosurgical team is going to place. Basically, you need to know how to switch it to monitoring versus how to switch it to drainage. Um, and you need to have a conversation with your neurosurgical colleagues about what the most appropriate volume drainage is because you have no feedback um, other than your ICP monitor, whereas they'll be aware uh, of the state of the ventricles at the beginning of the procedure. Um, Of course, this isn't a measure that's taken lightly. It's an indwelling catheter um, typically placed under less than ideal circumstances, It's not routinely done for intraoperative neurosurgery. In that setting, typically what will happen is your neurosurgical colleagues will actually tap one of the cisterns and take off CSF uh, essentially with a syringe. You won't be aware of that necessarily, and it is one of those things that requires good communication between the anesthesiologist and the surgeon uh, to know whether this has happened. How does that affect you? Well, if you wanted to sit that patient up after surgery to facilitate respiration, you may not want to do that if their CSF levels have been lowered. You can encounter brain sag as a result. Um, so in any type of intracranial surgery, you'd be wise to ask the neurosurgeons if they have taken off cerebrospinal fluid um, if there's not a drain in place, but there's the possibility that it might have happened. Um, and you should plan your own uh, end of case. Based on that,
1: what are the um, what would you see if you had brain sag when you sat a patient up at the end of a case?
2: So, unfortunately, um, you might not see a whole lot acutely, but uh, what you're putting the patient at risk of are cranial nerve palsies. So, basically, all the cranial nerves sit on the bottom of the brain, and if the brain isn't floating appropriately, depending on the patient's anatomy and the the degree to which it's floated, um, you can have gaze palsies. Um, you can have facial nerve palsies. Those are probably the things that you would appreciate most, uh, most abruptly. Uh, additionally, and even more dramatically, although somewhat less likely, you can actually have tearing of the, dur- the, uh, the dural bridging veins, which could result in a fairly rapid decompensation. Um, none of this would be very immediately apparent to you unless you were doing careful neurologic exams. And so these are all things that are best avoided by keeping these patients supine. Great. Um, last, and I hesitate to say last because, of course, there are always many different approaches we could take to changing intracranial pressure, but the last most common technique that we would be likely to use is the use of hypertonic saline, uh, either in a 2% or a 3% concentration. Um, this technique, which is commonly used in ICUs, where, again, it's in some studies associated with better outcomes, uh, even outside of its properties on ICP, um, can allow you to essentially change uh, the, vast, the intraparenchymal part, compartment, similar to the use of mannitol. Essentially, you are mobilizing free water from the parenchyma and causing it to be urinated out. Um, the main caveat that I would put out there is uh, avoiding sudden hypernatremia and also limiting your therapy to some predefined uh, sodium goal. In keeping in mind that at some point, the patient's sodium is going to have to be normalized and that you're putting the ICU in a position where they'll have to manage that. Um, the use of 2% drip can be instituted through a standard intravenous line, uh, but it's not nearly as effective as the 3% drip, which typically uh, by protocol would require a central line. So those are the main methodologies by which one can either alter the ICP in the setting of patient who's herniating and needs rapid decompression of the brain medically versus uh, methods to reduce uh, brain tension and incur brain relaxation to facilitate neurosurgery.
1: That's great. Dave, if you were going to use hypertonic saline, do you use it as a drip, as a bolus, or both?
2: Uh, It can be used as either. The common parlance in the unit is to give a bullet of hypertonic saline that's typically done with a 3% concentration um, whereas the, um, the 2% concentration is typically run as a as an infusion.
1: And when you're running it as an infusion, are you monitoring and targeting a certain sodium goal, or are you monitoring ICP and and titrating to that?
2: So typically in the intraoperative setting, basically you are instituting the therapy in communication with your surgeons for a brain relaxation goal, um, and you're modulating the therapy based on A cutoff of sodium, um, which, you know, it's arguable what that number should be. Um, Whereas in the unit, typically you'll have a monitor and you're actually titrating to the monitor itself, again, with the caveat that you'll probably set a sodium goal and not exceed it.
1: Great. All right. That's fantastic. So we've dealt with the therapy for increased ICP, and you're thinking you're going to come back another day and talk to us about uh, the physiology?
2: That sounds like fun.
1: We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much, Dr. David Mintz. Hope to have you on the show again soon, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jed. All right. That's all for this week. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. David Mintz, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.